Over the past three weeks, I was intrigued by several stories. The first two take place in the state of Texas. So on the 9th of September, the governor of Texas signed a bill into law. And that bill was to block a plan to store highly radioactive nuclear waste from power plants that generate electricity from nuclear fission, in other words, nuclear power plants, at a site in West Texas. That was House Bill 7. And the bill banned these highly radioactive materials from coming to the state of Texas. But three days later, the Federal Nuclear Regulatory Commission issued nonetheless a license to a private sector company to build and operate what they called an interim storage facility for spent nuclear fuel and waste. Guess where? In Texas. So on the one hand, you had the Texas governor and legislator first saying they don't want any nuclear waste stored in their state. And then on the other hand, you have the federal government saying, oh no, you're going to get some. And the strange bit is that this House Bill 7 was pretty unanimous across the Texas legislator. Now that means Republicans and Democrats and religious groups and environmental groups and oil and gas companies all got together and said, we don't want this around. So I thought to myself, something strange must be going on. And the Texas governor was loving it. So he accused the Biden administration of trying to dump highly radioactive nuclear waste in Texas and stated his position that Texas will not become America's nuclear waste dumping ground. And when I looked into it, what was strange is that Texas was already part of America's nuclear waste dumping ground. And they have lots of this nuclear waste already in storage in exactly the same way as this proposed storage site would have. And then watching this was the entire U.S. electricity sector because American nuclear power plants continue to store this radioactive waste on site and the United States doesn't have a permanent place to bury the stuff to this day. And so what you see in Texas is that the industry has had to settle on interim proposals. So that's where they put the waste away for, say, 40 years because isn't it elegant to just park the problem without resolving it and then leaving it to your children to sort it out? And what's going on, you might ask? Welcome to episode 53 of the Angry Clean Energy Guy with me, 
Asad Rizouk. I am so happy you're here. Thank you. Let's cut through the chase. The fundamental problem of nuclear energy is that when you mention it, when you even just say the words, Jane and Joe Public immediately think Armageddon. And I can't say I would blame her or him. Let's run through some quick history first. So the very first nuclear power plant in the world that was connected to an external grid and therefore exported electricity was commissioned in the Soviet Union in 1954. That's 67 years ago. And it was located in a mini city called Obninsk, southwest of Moscow. And that plant closed 48 years later. Meanwhile, the city, Obninsk, interestingly, remains the first science city of Russia. That's its official title. Because it has many scientific research institutes, not surprisingly, some of which are focused on nuclear technology. Then after that Obninsk plant, most of the industrialized West, plus countries like India and China, deployed nuclear power plant themselves. But over the course of these 67 years, the backlash against nuclear power increased. And that was because of accidents that captured the public's imagination. Because in fact, in every case, they could result in an enormously tragic loss of life across a vast geographical area. And these accidents included Chernobyl in the Soviet Union, Three Mile Island in the United States, and more recently Fukushima in Japan. And these accidents, which so affected the public imagination, basically resulted in a stop to the growth of nuclear power plants pretty much around the world. In the 70s, your typical future electricity forecast assumed that nuclear energy would provide 20% of everything that we need globally, and the industry itself thought it could go up to 50%. But then the accidents started occurring, and each was even more colorful and scary than the previous one. At the same time, several countries started using their reactors, which on the face of it were power plants for civilian use, to pursue nuclear weapons. So that wasn't really good at all. And then finally, the waste disposal and site cleanup remained an unsolved problem, as well as a huge expense on the industry. Now, the nuclear industry and the military did put a lot of effort and billions of dollars to try to address these points, but they failed. Every time the industry or government said that the nuclear power problems have been resolved, and typically they would use France 
which at one point had 80% of its power from nuclear energy as the poster child, you would get hit by another black swan event. And that's for big electricity power plants. At the same time, small, compact, and therefore allegedly safer reactor technologies didn't work either. And after 70 years and an enormous amount of money thrown at them, nuclear warships today still use reactors which are not that different from the original 1950s design. So the industry in reality accomplished incredibly little since, in substance. And then to add to that, the context in which it was operating meant that the subsidies that were thrown at it, on top of what you and I would pay through our electricity bill, when we buy electricity from a nuclear power plant, were enormous. Anywhere from a third to one and a half of the actual cost of the plant, which is already gigantic to begin with. And so in simple terms, basically, what that means is that electricity from nuclear power costs perhaps double what it looks like it costs. And that extra is being buried in government's books and comes right out of your pocket, you the citizen. Now, clearly, if nuclear worked and was scalable beyond what was already achieved, China would be the natural leader because China has literally tried everything. Most of China's population and almost all its industry is very close to enormous sources of cooling because nuclear requires an enormous amount of water to cool it down. And let's not talk about what that water, when it then flows through the oceans and the rivers, results in terms of an ecological disaster, which is absolutely massive. So China has had and repeatedly revised its plans to deploy multiple reactors along its coastal provinces. And it's been doing that since the 1980s. They partnered first with the French, then with the Germans, and then went for it alone. And they built pilots of one new small and safe technology after another. But they still haven't succeeded in putting together a competitive offering on the global market in what is supposed to be a mature technology. And that's quite the rare failure for China. And they're still at it to this day. Just a few weeks ago, Beijing announced that it has finished building a pilot thorium-fueled molten salt nuclear reactor in the middle of the Gobi Desert in the north of China. And I promise I'll explain what that is in a minute. Now, this thing would be the first of that particular technology operating in the world since 1969 when the Americans shut down their 
pilot, 1969. So today, nuclear reactors use uranium as fuel, and they use water. In this Chinese design, which is a rebirth of what the Americans were doing before 1969, you use molten salt and thorium instead. And basically, it's the salt that becomes the fuel. We all really don't need to do much more than that. The attraction is that this makes the nuclear installations safer by avoiding situations where the nuclear reactor can get out of control and then damage the reactor structures. The other advantage is you don't need to build this reactor near water because the molten salts themselves serve as a coolant. In a conventional uranium power plants, so not thorium, but uranium power plants, you need a huge amount of water to cool the reactors. And so the Chinese can build them and install them in an isolated region like the Gobi Desert, which is what they're trying to do. And the final reason why the Chinese like it is that thorium, rather than uranium, is much more present in nature. So we have a lot more thorium than uranium. And China in particular, which is known to be rich in rare earth metals, is rich in thorium. Now, there's all sorts of other different problems with this new tech that the Chinese are trying, which is actually not that new since the Americans stopped trying it in 1969. But one of the key reasons is that the thorium nuclear reactor not only produces energy, but it produces something called uranium-233. Uranium-233, as it happens, does not exist in nature and can be used to build atomic bombs. So you see the problem. Every time the nuclear industry tries to lift its game, it basically creates additional problems that it doesn't know how to resolve. And so... I would not bet, personally, that the Chinese will be able to scale that pilot thorium nuclear power plant. Now, let's take a step back. Pro-nuclear people think we should deploy them faster, in fact, and therefore invest a lot more in the existing technologies and in continuing to innovate because we can decarbonize the world faster. Now, that's true because nuclear power is clean energy. But then in real life, nuclear power is not cost competitive. And I'll give you an example. France, a country highly knowledgeable in nuclear power, thinks it needs 15 years and 20 billion euros to build a new nuclear power plant. Do you know what you could do with 20 billion euros? You can buy enough solar panels to build 100 gigawatts of solar power. And you can install these in no time, as opposed to the 15 years that it would take to build a nuclear power plant. So why would you do that? I don't understand it. And then even if we did, if we knew what to do with nuclear waste, and for those of you that don't know, some of that nuclear waste takes 10,000 years 
10,000 years to lose its radioactive characteristics. So if we knew what to do with that nuclear waste, fine. We should go all out on nuclear power. And if nuclear power didn't need so much water per day to cool off, then we should also definitely go for nuclear power. But we need to face the facts. These things take 15 to 20 years to build. They cost a fortune by any measure. They use an enormous amount of water, and every technological innovation to try and deal with all these makes something else worse. So think about it this way. Nuclear costs four or five times as much as solar and wind, and it pollutes 30 times as much as solar and wind. And so why should we have it? And then to top it all up, nuclear power has weapons and meltdown risks. Why bother? I don't understand it. I understand, of course, the zero carbon aspect of nuclear, but we can't just be theoretical about these things. We don't have time to cut emissions. So we don't have time to build nuclear power plants, at least not the ones that we can build, the uranium ones. Now, there is another kind of nuclear which is far more exciting. It's in the kitchen, so to speak, and it's called nuclear fusion. Now, nuclear fusion is very much the clean energy powers the world dream. And the most interesting thing about nuclear fusion is that nature itself invented it. So, about 100 million years after Big Bang, there was a first fusion reaction which was produced in an ultra-dense, ultra-hot core of a gigantic gaseous sphere. And as a result, the very first star was born. And then, as you know, that was followed by literally billions of other stars in a process that continues to this day. And the way nuclear fusion is different from nuclear fission, which is what powers today's nuclear plants, is that today's nuclear power plants take big, unstable atoms, and then they split them. Whereas fusion takes small atoms and combines them to forge larger atoms. Think about a star being formed. And fusion is the universe's ubiquitous power source, the entire universe, because it's what causes the sun and stars to shine, and it's the reaction that created most of the atoms we're made of. And so we are researching, and have been since the 1940s, how the power of the sun and the stars can be harnessed in a man-made machine. And that's actually quite amazing in its own rights. And the beautiful thing about the fusion dream is that fusion doesn't produce carbon dioxide. It doesn't produce radioactive waste. And the fuel that it needs, types of hydrogen, 
are plentiful. They would last us for thousands of years. And finally, these plants, so a hypothetical nuclear fusion plant, wouldn't take any space compared to what we need for solar and wind, for example. But look, for now, we've got to think about nuclear fusion as a dream. Except the last bit of nuclear articles that sparked my interest and are behind really why I put together this podcast is that just last month, an experiment in the United States trying to do exactly what I just described, so in effect reproduce the power source of the stars, smashed its own record, which it only delivered in 2018, for energy released from nuclear fusion 23 times over. Now, what that experiment is about is to try and prove that we can generate energy from nuclear fusion. We're not there yet, but we are getting very close. Because the team behind this increased by about a thousand times how much energy is released in the last 10 years. And that's pretty amazing. But for now, this breakthrough, which made headlines everywhere, is only about proving the principle. So we're not really generating any energy to speak of. What they did is just enough to boil a kettle, literally. But it's a landmark moment because we have been on a decades-long quest to produce fusion energy and then use it to power the planet. If we succeed, that's most likely to be the greatest scientific achievement ever. But I don't want to keep you all day, and you can Google nuclear fusion and then read all about it. The point is that every dollar that we put today in conventional nuclear, so the uranium stuff, or in improving that technology, which we have a clear track record of not being able to, only creates new problems and isn't working. Plus, the industry is not cost competitive and cannot build power plants fast enough to tackle the climate emergency that we're in. We don't have 20 years, and we haven't even started on anything in terms of nuclear power plants. Now, fusion, by contrast, is an area which we should put very serious R&D dollars in, and probably a lot more than we're doing, because, as I said before, it would be probably the biggest scientific achievement ever if we delivered it. Now, it doesn't mean we're going to deliver it in the next 50 years, but we cannot stop to keep trying. Let me finish by saying this. Conventional nuclear power is finished. Innovating in that sector is not worth your time or money. And we need to stop working on nuclear power challenges, which invariably just kick the can down the road and 
make us trade one set of problems from oil, gas, and coal, for example, for another set of problems from nuclear power. Renewable energy is plentiful, it's cheap, and what it needs is it needs all these dollars that are going into conventional nuclear power research, all these dollars that are going into oil, gas, and coal exploration to move into renewables in order for us to deploy renewables about three times faster than what we're doing at the moment in order to have even a small chance of keeping temperature increases to two degrees Celsius above pre-industrial times. And we just simply don't have the 20 to 30 to 40 to 50 years that nuclear power would need as a solution. But at the same time, we should most certainly invest in nuclear fusion because if we figure out how the power of the sun and the stars can be harnessed in a man-made machine, we would have solved our energy problem forever. But meanwhile, I simply don't understand, in the case of conventional nuclear power, why we like to create problems first, then try to solve them later, or even worse, pass them on. And on that note, thank you so much for listening to this episode 53 of the Angry Clean Energy Guy with me, Assad Razouk. And if you like the show, please rate it, share it, review it, and have a great couple of weeks.